Well, good morning. It's so great to be with you. Thank you for all of us that are joining uh, us online here at this 9 o'clock service at Elevation Church. As he said, my name is Josh, and I pastor a faith community in House Springs. My wife, Lauren, and I do, and our son, Carson, he's 10. And uh, we celebrated seven years as pastors of that church uh, two Mondays ago on the 14th of June. Seven years. And uh, yeah, pretty crazy. And uh, someone said, what have you learned in seven years? I learned I have more gray hair up here and uh, in my beard and uh, learned so many wonderful things. And uh, it's great to be with you again. It's been, I think, a couple years since I had the opportunity uh, to come and share. And I'll tell you one thing, though. I love your pastors. Uh, I love them a lot. Uh, for five years, Pastor Danny and I have met every Friday uh, for coffee. I won't tell you where. It's our secret. But uh, we've met for coffee at 830 on a Friday morning and uh, gotten to know one another and uh, have become become more than friends and become brothers and uh, love uh, what they're doing right now and taking an opportunity to get healthy and to get some rest and uh, because there's nothing like rest. You know, I'll say this. I know I've got a timer, but you, uh, the Lord was really dealing with me about rest. And you know, the very first day of existence for humanity on earth was a day of rest. The very first thing that God told humanity to do was rest, not go perform an action, not do it, rest. And so I hope that uh, you're taking the lead on this and learning from your pastors how important rest is. And that activity is great, but God does some amazing things through rest. But I want to jump in today. I want to share with you a message that I've already preached. I preached it at our place, and we're in a series called Sunday School Stories. We're just going back through Scripture and looking at stories that we heard maybe as kids, or if you didn't grow up in church, maybe you've heard them, stories like David and Goliath and Joshua in the Battle of Jericho, and all these kind of stories, and looking how God uses everyday average broken people to do some pretty amazing things. And I took over the course of two weeks to preach on Gideon. And I don't know how many of you have heard the story of Gideon. Some of you may have. And the, one of the most uh, notable things about that story is how Gideon uses these fleeces, right, to test God, that he needed a sign. And so I took two weeks to talk about that story. And I want to take probably what I did in two weeks and hopefully condense it uh, down for us today. But there's been a theme unfolding in the series for us that I thought was pretty amazing. And it's just been organic. And what the theme has been is that we are not the hero of the story. God is. That God is the hero, right? That David isn't the hero of the story. That Joshua isn't the hero of that story. And any story that you'll read, that it's not the individual in the story that who's the hero, it's God. And I think that's important because so often we want to be these people, right? I got to be David. I got to slay my Goliath. I got to be Joshua. I got to knock down the walls. I got to be Gideon. I got to defeat the armies. And the whole point is not that those men did anything. They were just obedient to God and God did what they needed him to do. And so today I want to take a look at this story, but, and it's a, it's a story of victory, right? It's a story that has a great uh, kind of ending. There's a climax. Otherwise, these stories wouldn't be worth telling if they all ended badly. But I don't want to focus on the victory. I don't want to focus on, you know, the best part of the story. What I want to focus on is the process, the process of victory. I think God is way more concerned about the process that he puts us in than the destinations and the things that he can do for us. Whereas we are way more focused on the victories, the goals, uh, the blessings, all those things we want from God, right? But we don't understand there's a process that he puts us through. A process. I heard one pastor say it like this. We're a microwave generation serving a crockpot God. Right? A microwave generation serving a crockpot God. We want God to do these things for us, and he will because he's gracious, but he'll put us through a process. And my question today is, are we willing to engage in the process? 
Are we willing to trust God in the process? Now, Gideon, he comes from the book of Judges. He's mentioned in Judges 6, 7, and 8, and then again in Hebrews chapter 11 in the great Hall of Fame of Faith chapter. Judges comes after the book of Joshua. Joshua is a great book, a book of conquest, a book of blessing where they go into the land that God promised them and they win all these battles. And Joshua was the kind of man that if God said it, he did it. If God said it, he did it, no matter how crazy it was. Joshua dies, and before he dies, he instructs the people. He says, I want you to continue to be faithful and obedient to God. Whatever he says, do, and you'll be blessed. But just like we see all throughout the Old Testament, the, the Israelites struggled with blessing. They would be blessed by God, and then they would forget God because they didn't need him. After Joshua dies within a generation, they've forgotten God. They think they can do it on their own. See, that's the problem with victory. Victory and success are harder to manage than failure. But we all want victory. They get victory. They get success. Within a generation, they're worshiping Baal. They're worshiping the gods of the people that they are conquering. They're doing everything that God had told them not to do. And finally, Judges chapter 6, they cry out to God, rescue us. Uh, We need help. We're suffering down here. God sends a prophet to them. Gideon's not the prophet. God sends the prophet, and the prophet says, here, I want, I want to remind you of something. I want to remind you of all that God has done for you. He rescued you out of Egypt. He fed you in the wilderness. Your clothes didn't wear out. He gave you victory over your enemies. And he says, I want, I want you to know something, because the Midianites here are the people that are attacking Israel. They're stealing their crops. They're tearing their houses down. The Israelites are living in caves. They're being severely oppressed by Midian. And the prophet says, your problem is not Midian. Your problem is you. Your problem isn't Midian. Your problem is your disobedience. This is not a fun message, I promise, but it's good. Your problem is, is that you're not continuing to trust in me. You're trying to trust in yourself, and you've begun to worship things that have no power and don't mean anything. I'll rescue you, but I want you to see that your enemy is not your problem. I think that's difficult for us because we don't always want to take responsibility, right? Now, there are some problems we have that we inherited because of other people. But there are a lot of issues that we face that we play a role in. And I think the Spirit of the Lord at times needs to remind us that our enemy isn't our biggest problem. It's us. And so God says, I'll rescue you. And he raises up this man named Gideon. And we find Gideon in the bottom of a wine press threshing wheat. He's threshing wheat in the bottom of a wine press, which you don't normally do. You want to thresh wheat on an open surface so when you throw it up, the chaff blows away. And you're left with that kernel of wheat, right? That thing that provides life and sustenance. But he's in the bottom of a wine press because the enemy's stealing their crops. So he's hiding out, right? Threshing wheat. And God shows up in the form of Jesus and says, hey, Gideon, mighty hero. He calls him a mighty hero from the very beginning. Gideon's not a mighty hero. Gideon hasn't done anything. He's afraid, and he's threshing wheat in the bottom of a wine press. He doesn't even realize it's God. And he's talking to him like, who are you you talking to? He's like, I'm talking to you. You're a mighty hero. You're going to rescue these people. Goes through this whole conversation with him. Once he realizes it's God, he's like, I need a sign. Give me a sign right? You've got to prove to me that it's you. And he goes and he makes this sacrificial uh, meal and he brings it back to the angel of the Lord, which is Jesus. And the angel of the Lord says, bring it here, takes his staff and touches the food and it just completely consumes. It just burns up right there. And Gideon's like, falls on his knees. He said, oh, I, I, I realize it's you, God. It is you. Forgive me. You're going to kill him. And he's like, no, I'm not going to kill you. He says, now I want you to go and I want you to destroy the altars that your father has built on his land to Baal and Asherah poles. Gideon goes at night. He does it the next morning. All the people are there mad. They want to kill him because he's destroyed 
their altars. And it's interesting. It's interesting. These people in the beginning of chapter 6 are crying out to God to save them. And just a few verses later, they're mad when Gideon destroys the gods that they've been serving in the altars. Isn't it kind of interesting that we want God to fix our situation, but we don't want to do anything? We want God to come into the middle of our mess, and we don't want to stop doing the things that are killing us and that are destroying us because we love our dysfunction. Right? I mean, I know I do. I don't know about you. Dysfunction, although difficult, is known, and known is better than what is not known. So they're crying out to God on one hand, and they're ready to kill Gideon on the other because he's pointing them back to God. And Gideon's father steps up and says, okay, if these gods are really real, let them defend themselves. You don't need to kill my son, so they agree not to kill Gideon. So Gideon's seen some amazing things. God just, you know, completely consumed food on a rock. He destroys the gods, and his life is spared, and God says, all right, Gideon, it's time to go fight the Midianites. And Gideon says, give me, just give me one sign. I need another sign. He said, what I'm going to do, God, is I'm going to take this piece of wool and I'm going to lay it outside and I want everything to be dry around it, yet I want it to be wet, like with dew in the morning. So he gets up, he wrings it out, it's wet, everything else is dry. It's like, oh man, Gideon, God is, God is doing amazing things for you. And just when you think Gideon has great faith, he says, all right, God, I, okay, I know I asked you for that. I need another sign. He tests God, I need another one. Here's what I want now, God. I want everything around the piece of wool to be uh, wet and the piece of wool be dry. He wakes up the next day, and it's that way. So God, every time Gideon asked for a sign, God gave him a sign. He tested God three times, and God came through three times. And just when you think that you wouldn't do that, you would. Gideon is no different than Moses. Moses says, give me a sign, God, and God does. Give me a sign, and God does. And then Moses is like, yeah, I'm still not your guy. I'm still not going to do it, right? And that's when God sends Aaron. We all need signs. What's amazing is, is God's grace, as Gideon is mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11 in the great hall of faith, that he was a man of great faith, even though we see here that it took at least three signs for him to do what God asked him to do. So now we get to where I want to start, and that's in verse 7. Excuse me, chapter 7. Chapter 7 opens up with Gideon. He gives this big, huge, like, kind of speech thing, and he rallies 32,000 men. 32,000 men to come fight the Midianites, although there's 135,000 Midianites. They're they're outnumbered by 100,000 men. He gets them all together to go and fight the Midianites, and then God does something unique to Gideon. God kind of turns the tables on Gideon and says, okay, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. He says, oh, you tested me, Gideon, now I'm going to test you. You tested me, now I'm going to test you. First thing I think I kind of gather from this story is, is that the victory is really God's. The victory is God's. It's not ours. Let me, let me read to you. This is Judges chapter 7. We're going to skip, skip around. We're not going to go in, in linear order in the, in the verses. Uh, this is verses 7 through 9 and then 15. So the Lord told Gideon, with these 300 men, and we'll get back there, I will rescue you and give you victory over the Midianites. Send all the others home. So Gideon collected the provisions and the ram's horns of the other warriors and sent them home. But he kept the 300 men with him. The Midianite camp was in the valley just below Gideon. And that night, the Lord said, get up, go down to the Midianite camp, for I have given you the victory over them. Go to verse 15. He says, when Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, and I'll tell you about that, he bowed and worshiped before the Lord. Then he returned to the Israelite camp and shouted, get up, for the Lord has given you victory over the Midianite hordes. Get up, for the Lord has given you victory over the Midianite hordes. 
So what we see in here is this is before they even fight, God is promising to give them victory. Go back to chapter 6. God tells Gideon, you will rescue the people. I will do this through you. God promises victory from the beginning. Anytime in scripture when you see, I have done something in the Old Testament, I have given you victory, it's the present perfect tense. Now my degree is in Spanish, not in seminary, okay? I thought I was going to be a missionary. So I'm kind of a language nerd. The present perfect tense means this, it's already done. In, in, in classic Hebrew, there is no future tense. They don't have a future tense. It's already done. So like there's a passage in the Old Testament that says, there shall be no barren among you. Or there will be no. It literally says there is no barren among you ever. It's, it's done. It's already complete. So when God says that it's done, that's the language of faith. I have given you victory. So God tells Gideon that in chapter 6. He tells him again here in chapter 7. You have already won. The victory is already completed. Then Gideon goes to the people. He says it has been done. God gives Gideon one other sign. He tells Gideon, if you're still afraid, I want you to sneak down into the camp, and I want you to come, you'll hear these guys talking in the tent, the Midian camp. So he sneaks down with a guy, and he hears this conversation between these two Midianite soldiers, and one of them says, so Gideon's outside the tent listening, and he says, I had a dream last night, this is this Midianite soldier, that this like loaf of bread, this barley loaf, came rolling down the hill and destroyed our camp, and I don't know what it means. And the other guy in the tent says, it can only mean one thing, that the God of Gideon is going to give them victory and destroy us all. So Gideon hears that, and he's like, for sure, God is going to give us victory. Fourth sign. Fourth sign, right? And he crawls back up, and then he goes to the, third, he goes to the men, and he says, God is going to give us victory. So, but here's what I want us to see. If the victory is God's, then the battle is God's too. Right? If the victory is God's, then the battle is his as well. When we see the battle, God sees the victory. And you sang that song today, right? The battle belongs to the Lord, which is so cool because I asked our team to sing that last week for this particular message. I didn't tell these guys anything except I sent them my notes. That the battle belongs to the Lord. That the victory is God's. That you and I, we do not get to take credit for the victory or the battle. We just have to, but God leads us into battle. How many of you want victories without battles? Be honest. Don't give me the spiritual answer. Right? I want the victory, but I don't want the battle. If God was good, then he wouldn't lead me into battle. No, God is good, so he does lead us into battle. He does lead us into battle. And we have to realize that as Christ's followers, that we're fighting from victory, not for victory. Because it's already done. But, but think about this story is crazy. If you're Gideon, how are you responding to this? And it gets crazier. I mean, we, this is, we can celebrate it because we look at it, the victory. We're not in his process. Right? Because I said God, Gideon tested God. Now God would test Gideon. And that's the second thing here is the testing. So the victory and the battle are God's, but the testing. What is the testing? Here, here's the testing. Let me read it to you and we'll talk about it. So... Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, his name was changed after he tore down the altars, and his army got up early, this is the beginning of, verse, of chapter 7, and went as far as the spring of Herod. The armies of Midian were camped north of them in the valley near the hill of Morah. Then the Lord said to Gideon, you have too many warriors with you. No, I don't, God. I'm a hundred thousand down. I do not have too many warriors. You have too many. If I let you fight the Midianites, the Israelites will boast to me that they saved themselves by their own strength. 
Therefore, tell the people, whoever's timid or afraid may leave the mountain and go home. So 22,000 left and went home, leaving only 10,000 who were willing to fight. God just getting, hey, just let everybody know who's afraid they can go home. 22,000 leave. Two-thirds get up and walk out. He's got 10,000. Midianite's still got 135. But the Lord said to Gideon, there's still too many. Bring them down to the spring, and I'll test them to determine who will go with you and who will not. When Gideon took his warriors down to the water, the Lord told him, divide the men in two groups. And one group put all those who cup water in their hands and lap it up with their tongues like dogs. And the other group put all those who kneel down and drink with their mouths in the stream. Only 300 of the men drank from their hands. All the others got down on their knees and drank with their mouths in the stream. I don't know the significance of why or how God used that to determine who could fight, but he did. But he got it down to 300 from 32,000. So that means 31,700 warriors went home. And Gideon was left with 300 to fight 135,000. Ridiculous. God doesn't make sense a lot, right? No general or person who's planning a battle would ever think this is a good idea. This doesn't make logical sense. This doesn't make numerical sense. It makes no sense. There's no conventional wisdom at play here. There's just Gideon having to trust the process that the God who gave him four signs, right? They said, I have promised you battle. Either he's going to come through or he's not. Gideon's faith is not only being tested, it's also being revealed to him by God. Because faith is what? It's the evidence of, of, of things not seen, the substance of things hoped for, right? He, God found Gideon in the threshing floor, in a wine press. Here's something unique about Gideon's name. Gideon's name means hewer. Like when a stone is hewn, when a stone is removed, if you take a piece of rock, like think of the statue of David, right? That's in Italy somewhere, I think. That was once a big piece of rock that this amazing artist removed things, subtracted from that rock to produce the statue of David. That's what Gideon's name means. Things to be removed, to be shaped, to be formed. He is found in the bottom of a wine press threshing wheat. And when you thresh, things are removed and they're sifted. You have less than what you started with. Sometimes the test that God puts us through is removal or pruning. He takes things away from us. We want God to add. We want more, right? We pray for more. Our culture is all about more. Get more, get more, get more. Succeed, succeed, succeed. And I think God does want to do more, but God does more by taking things away from us. We, we get this. Our culture is like this. The other day I was driving Highway 30 and I looked over and they're building this new building. And I thought, oh, I wonder what that's going to be. I hope it's not a, you know, storage facility. Guess what it is? It's a storage facility. That's all we build anymore, storage facilities. Why? So we can pay for to junk to be stored that we don't even use. And then we go get more junk. Right? Like, that's a first world problem. We have so much junk that we have to pay to store the junk that we'll never see again. Now, if you have a storage unit, I'm sorry. I'm not trying to offend you, but... I saw the other day that there's an app out there called Neighbor, and it's an Airbnb for junk where you can pay somebody to store your stuff at their house. <laughs> and yet we still don't have enough, do we? And we're on this rat race or wheel of more. 
God, give me more. God, give me the increase. Yeah. But can you go through the decrease? Can you be threshed? Can you be hewn? If we can use that word. Are we willing to be pruned? To let God take things from us? So that he can fill it with himself. It says this in in Zechariah. Chapter 4, verse 6, it says that not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit. God removed from Gideon power and strength. He removed soldiers and weapons because they go into the valley with torches and ram's horns. Not with swords. Torches and ram's horns. And the battle plan is this. Whenever we go into the valley, here's what we're going to do. He divided the guys into three groups, three groups of 100. He said, at my command, do this. We're going to throw the torches on the ground. They're going to light the ground on fire. We're going to scream and cheer and blow the ram's horns, and God is going to give us the victory. Stupid, right? I hope you don't read that story and be like, yep, it's exactly what I would do. It's what I was thinking. That's the plan. Power and strength are removed from Gideon. And the only thing that Gideon has left is to depend on the Spirit of God. On the Spirit of God. And that is not fun. That is not exciting. But we have to come to the realization that bigger is not always better with God. Bigger is not always better. I I think that, that 2020 was a unique time in which even the church had to experience that bigger wasn't better. It wasn't about preaching to a packed out room. It wasn't about getting butts and seats because at least for three months, there were no butts and seats, right? My butt was on my couch with you, watching church, watching myself, (laughs) right? It was a perceived audience. You know, the, the, the scorecard changed, right? The scorecard changed. It wasn't just about getting people in here so that we could feel better about ourselves. Bigger is not always better with God. As a matter of fact, bigger can often be a hindrance. I was thinking about this idea of God removing things. And you see it all throughout Scripture. Especially when you get to the New Testament and right before Jesus ascends into heaven. He's got 120 followers left. If Jesus is a case study for effective leadership as it relates to numbers, he didn't do a very good job. He ended with fewer than he started. And he takes this group of 120 and he says, here's what you need. You need to go and await and you need to wait for the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to fall on you and to fill you so that you can accomplish this mission. Can you imagine if there had been tens of thousands of followers? You think they might have had a little bit of, you know, belief in themselves. Look, Jesus, look around. There's 10,000 of us. We're going to take this world for you. There's 120. And Jesus says, you can't do a thing until the Holy Spirit fills you. Then you'll have power. Then you'll have strength. Because it's not strength and power in numbers. It's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Yeah. And you can... You can see that pattern all throughout Scripture. Watch God remove. Watch God decrease. And he tells them, the Israelites, if you win this battle with 10,000, you're going to think that you did it. But you didn't do it. I did it because the victory is mine. 
There's this, this thing that we have to, to come to terms with is this, and that, that God is ultimately for God. He's ultimately for his purpose and his plan. I know that he's for us and not against us. But he's not for us when it's contrary to his plan. He's not for us when it's contrary to our, his character. And he is so for us, if I can backtrack, that he sent his son Jesus Christ to find us and rescue us and save us. And then we follow him. He doesn't follow us. We could test him. We could put that fleece out there, but there will come a point when he says, all right, let me test and reveal your faith to you. Let me just say this, and I want to share a scripture. I wrote this down, that God wants us to realize and remain totally dependent on him. To realize and remain totally dependent on him. God is not a parent that we outgrow. We don't leave his house, get our own job, do our own thing. And treat God as if he's, you know, someone we used to go to. We are the children of God. We are forever dependent on him. And every new level, every new success that you get, you're going to be more dependent on him than you were before. You don't outgrow him. I should say we don't outgrow him. Let me include myself in that. We don't outgrow him. Because he's not, he's not impressed by our accomplishments. He doesn't care about how much money you've got and how many things you've done and how much success that you have. It's all because of him anyway. He's just saying, can you be successful? Can you be blessed and still be dependent? And still be faithful and still recognize your need for me and not become arrogant? Because it's all because of him and for him and through him. And in case you think I'm making that up, let me just bring you to Colossians real quick. Chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else and holds all of creation together. Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead. So he is first, everybody say first, first in everything. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ, and through him God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. He's first. He can't be second. He doesn't know how to be second or third. And he's not your co-pilot. He's the pilot. That's who he is. And he's so full of grace and mercy and love that he wants the best for you, but we got to trust that he knows what's best for us and that he may lead us through the battle. He may lead us through the pruning, but it's for our good. That everything he takes, he fills with himself. He fills with himself. You know, God is so drawn to your weakness. Didn't get an amen at my church either. <laughs> He's so drawn to your weakness. We live in a culture that abhors weakness. We hide weakness, right? We cover it up. We have this whole thing called social media where we just make up our life. You know, where we just put out, we present a life that isn't even real. You know what I mean? We hide behind it. And then we look at other people's lives and like, oh, their life is so amazing. No, it isn't. They just take better pictures than you. I guarantee you their house isn't that clean and their food doesn't look that good and their kids aren't that amazing all the time. It's fake. Some of it's real. But some of it's fake. 
right? Like, we, we, we like to do that. I like to do that. But there's this thing with God that he's so drawn to our weakness. He doesn't abhor our weakness. He isn't asking us to cover up our weakness. As a matter of fact, he wants us to put it on display before him. In fact, with God, weakness is strength. Weakness is strength. He, he reduces Gideon down to the point of his weakness, 300 soldiers for 135,000 men. And yet Gideon is like, God's going to give us the victory. There is no way on the planet if God doesn't show up that they win. Not at all, especially with ram's horns and torches. <laughs> right? Gideon is not the hero of this story. God is the hero. And you know what I think is, is interesting is, is that it seems like when God removes us, removes things from us, he leaves us with weakness. It seems like he takes the most strong and, and best thing in our life and he leaves us with just this weakness. But I think he just removes perceived strength and weakness. Perceived strength and weakness. He removes the, the perceived strength that we're putting our hope and our trust in. We're depending on this, this ability or this talent that he gave us. And, and it's good, but yet it's, it's perceived because the power isn't in your ability. The strength isn't in your ability or in your money or what you have or what you don't have or any all that stuff. It's always in him. And there's this weakness that he leaves us with. And instead of fixing it, he just fills it with himself. Like, God, I want you to fix my weakness. I want you to heal my weakness. I want you to, you, to, you to just make it as if it never existed. But God doesn't always do that. I'm not talking about sickness and you know, stuff. I'm talking about the areas where we're just so dependent on him. And you know, what I think is incredibly human as I, as I wind this down is Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul was successful. Paul wrote more books of the Bible than any other individual. Paul was brilliant. Paul had seen God do amazing things, yet Paul had something that was bothering him, and he asked God to take it away, and God did not. Listen to this exchange. He says, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away. He calls it this, his thorn in the flesh. Now, we don't really know what his thorn was. People have speculated, but nobody really knows what it is. He said, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in my weakness. And weakness, excuse me. Therefore, listen as therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why for Christ's sake, listen to this craziness, I delight in weakness. Delight in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. He says, I delight in these things. I'm like, I, de I decry these things. I abhor these things. I want these things to get away from me. I pray for God to never have difficulty, to never have insult, right? To never have persecutions. But Paul is saying, I delight. You want to know what delight means? Delight. You know, like he boasts of these things. He leans into these things, but not before he prayed. Three times. Take it away. This point is called perfect weakness. I don't do real good talking about my points, but perfect weakness. And three times, we don't know if this is three times back to back, if this is three times over the course of a period of time. It, that's my belief. It wasn't just like one day. It was Paul had been praying for this. And every time God says, my grace is sufficient for you. 
the undeserved, unmerited favor of God, the ability for God to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. That's what he tells Paul. And he says, my power is made perfect in your weakness. And here's what the word power means. It is the word dunamis in the Greek. It is where we get our English word dynamite. It is, it is this inherent power re- residing by virtue of its nature. It's just the power of God because that's his nature. We can also call it the miracle working power of God. The power of, that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is the power that lives inside of you and me. And here's the thing. That power is not going to be made perfect in your strength, in your ability, in your accolades. It's going to be made perfect in your weakness. Now, here's what perfect means. It doesn't mean like without flaw. It literally means to be made whole. It means to be made complete, to be executed in alignment with the intended purpose or command. And it's God's intent and God's purpose. And what does weakness mean? It just means wanting of strength, of body or of mind or of soul. I think Paul's telling us something that's pretty countercultural. He's saying, hey, stop running around trying to tell everybody how amazing you are. Stop lauding your accomplishments on, you know, whatever platform that you have. Stop trying to impress people and just boast about your weakness. Now, don't be an Eeyore, right? You know, don't be one of those people that feel sorry for themselves, but don't be so quick to try to prove how great you are. If you want God's power to flow in your life, you just talk about your weakness and how God has been made perfect and his power has been made perfect in your weakness. Embrace your weakness. Talk about it. Don't try to hide it because God is attracted to it and he will redeem it and he'll fill it with himself. You know, I have struggled with anxiety since I was a kid. Like, so much so that I would get sick and throw up. I was talking to my parents about it the other day. My mom's like, we probably should have got you help for that. And my dad's like, yeah, sure, look at him. He's fine. You know, he'd be all right. he's all right. He doesn't do it anymore. This, this anxiety, this worry about, am, am I going to be good enough? Am I going to have what it takes? And, you know, I'm 36 years old, and I'm feeling that way before I get up here today. I've been pastoring for seven years. I added up how many times I preached the other day, and I'm like, I still think it's going to be bad. Like, I, I don't, I, did, I, did I prepare enough, and is it going to connect, and I'm more comfortable at my own place than I am here. Are they going to like what I have to say? You know, all this crazy stuff. Get so worried and anxious and built up, and now my son's 10, and guess what? He's dealing with some of the same things, he's, and he's got some other challenges that we've recently discovered, and he's, he's going to some occupational therapy, but I'm sitting there as a father saying, God, I want to fix this. God, I want to I get in there and change this. My son's not going to be this or be this or be this. And I felt the Lord say, you need to trust the process. But I'm a father and I want to fix God. No, no, he's got a struggle, Josh. Because the struggle is going to produce the power. Don't rush in and fix it because you can't. Can I tell you how good God is? Can I take a little liberty here, Dustin, on time? Okay, I'm almost done, really. I know how good God is. After we, we discovered some of the challenges my son has, I'm... I'm sitting in this room we have in our house, and I was praying, and I was just struggling. I was just like, oh, you know, to me, the weight of the world was on my shoulders, and I know other people have much, much bigger issues, but for me, I'm praying, and I I felt the Lord say, Josh, he's right where he needs to be. It'll get worse before it gets better, but trust the process. And then he reminded me of something. Ten years ago, I was working for Joyce Meyer Ministries at the time, and I had started to travel 
we'd go around the, and do conferences. And we were in Phoenix, Arizona. We were at Tommy Barnett's church. It was one of my first gigs. And uh, I was doing the reserve seating at the front. And I met this guy the first night. His name was Frank Galvan from California. Never met this guy in my life. Said hello, got him his seat. The next day we go out to lunch and Frank's there. And he's like, Josh, right? I said, yeah. He said, last night the Lord told me to share two things with you, but I really wanted to be sure. He said, first, the Lord wanted me to tell you that the time you spend away from your family, he's going to redeem. My son had just been born, and we had, my wife, Laura, and I, we had talked a lot about, is this the right, op- right time to be leaving, you know, twice a month? And we both felt it was right, and I'm like, whoa. I don't know you, Frank, but that's right on the money. He said, secondly, the Lord told me to tell you that he's got your son in his arms, and everything's going to be okay. And I thought, oh, God, what's going to happen? Ten years later, I'm sitting in my living room. And the next thing the Lord says, 10 years ago, I told you I had my son, your son in my arms. It's a weakness that I have to embrace to watch God's power be made perfect in the life of my son. God is willing to let you struggle because he knows what's on the other side. He's willing to thresh you. He's willing to prune you, not because he's evil, not because he's mean, but because he's good. Are we willing? Are we willing to be hewn, to be tested? Is the victory worth it for you? Because the victory is just going to get, the next step's going to be harder. The next thing he asks you to do, it's going to get more difficult. And he wants you to depend on him. And he wants you to boast. God, apart from you, I ain't got what it takes. But with you, I do. It's not by might, it's not by power, but by my spirit. I thought I was going to preach this message to my church because they needed it. And I thought, man, I'm Gideon, not the hero. I'm Gideon in the bottom of the wine press, afraid, threshing the wheat. But don't forget what God told Gideon. Gideon, mighty hero. So when he's threshing you, when he's pruning you, when he's testing you, he's already declared mighty hero because I'm going to fill your weakness. I'm going to breathe into your situation and raise you up for my purpose. Would you bow your heads with me? I just ask if two questions. Number one, maybe you're here today. Maybe you're joining us online and you say, I've never taken the opportunity to give my life to Jesus, to follow him. If that's you, I'd love to give you an opportunity. The way I do it is, is you can raise your hand or, or you don't have to. You can just, I'm going to pray with you here in a moment. But secondly, what I want to do is I want to just see, you don't have to raise your hand, but are you struggling to embrace your weakness, to own it? To be confident that God is not going to reject you because of your weakness. That he's not going to run away from you. Matter of fact, he's running right towards your weakness. And are you willing to let him, his power, be made perfect in your weakness? Because if you are, then I'm pretty convinced that God can do some amazing things. So first, I'm going I'm to pray this. If you want to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, that you could pray something like this. Heavenly Father, thank you for your son, Jesus. I'm broken of sin in my life and I'm in need of forgiveness and I come to you 
knowing that you will not reject me, but you will accept me and forgive me. And I receive that forgiveness. And I declare that I will follow you. I'll make you the leader of my life, the Lord of my life. Secondly, I pray for all of us in here and, and those of us watching online that oh, we, can, we can be like Paul, that we can boast in our weakness. That when difficulties and persecutions and insults come our way, may we boast in the power that is in Christ Jesus, knowing that all of this testing and this difficult season is, is for our good and your power is going to be made perfect, Lord, that we are victorious because you are victorious. The victory is yours, Father. The battle is yours, Father. The testing is yours. We are servants in your hands. We are vessels that need to be filled so that you can pour us out for your purpose. Lord, I just pray over every person that's watching or in here today that, Father, the best days are yet to come. But it is not without a process, that there is no blessing without a process. Give us the strength and the courage and the confidence to engage with you in the process, knowing that you'll never leave us nor forsake us. And you will do, as Paul said in Ephesians 3.20, exceedingly and abundantly above anything that we could ask for or imagine at the power that is at work within us, and that is the power of Jesus Christ. And we pray it in his mighty and precious and beautiful name. Amen.